Uh, as I think back uh, to last year, during the month of October, we had a family that said, uh, we would like to give you a, uh, a magazine subscription. And I don't know if you're like me, I, I do so much reading you know, on the computer or with Kindle, and some of the books I buy these days are digital, that they want to give me an actual subscription that like comes in the mail, right? And you, you hold the magazine, and, and I, I'd heard of this magazine called Expositor, but I've never, I had never ordered it, and it's a, it's a magazine for preachers, and so I was, I was pretty excited about it. I thought, what a kind uh, a gift for Pastor Appreciation Month. And, and then I got the first issue out of the mail, and it had three words on the front. It said, improve your preaching. And I thought, uh, all righty then. <laughs> there, it is. there you go. Improve your preaching. I thought, you know, sometimes you get messages that you, that you want, right? I mean, you get these kind cards and they're just so encouraging. And they, they build you up and you probably aren't even worthy of what's written on there. And then, then sometimes you get messages that you really need, right? And I thought, there it is. I need, I need help. And how, how could I not? I mean, preaching is one of those things you could always improve upon. But uh, anyway, let me just say that I, I, I appreciate those expressions. And, and this, this particular uh, statement kind of reminds me of where we're headed because the book of Malachi and the prophet Malachi was really not giving words that necessarily were the words that the people wanted to hear, but they were the words that the people needed to hear. And I think that as we open up the book of Malachi together, there's going to be some nuggets there that weren't just for the people then. They are nuggets for us today. And as we go through this, it's a short book, just a few chapters long, but uh, I believe that God has uh, some, uh, some information for us that could really lead to transformation. And so uh, I invite your attention to the book of Malachi. I'll try to help you find it. Just go to Zephaniah. Um, or Haggai, Zechariah is right before it. So you, you land there or go to Matthew and take a left, okay? That, that'll get you right there into, uh, into the end of the Old Testament. We oftentimes call this a minor prophet. And uh, just to be clear, the reason we call it a minor prophet is it's because of one of those books that's really short. But the message is not minor. I mean, it may not be as long as a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah, other Old Testament prophets, but these, these short books of prophecy have really powerful messages. And so what I want to do before we, we get too far into the book is I want to give a bit of an introduction so that we understand the context. Who was it that wrote the book of Malachi? Who was he writing to? What was the situation at the time? Because that's really when we, when we look to Scripture, that's where we want to begin, Whenever we're reading a, a chapter or a verse, we want to see, well, who was it that wrote it? And what was the situation in which it was addressing? And then from there, we want to, 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 to bring about some application, which we always can, but we want to set the context first. So I'm going to take a few minutes this morning as we begin the series and, uh, and think about the context of this book, and then we'll make some application along the way. So beginning in Malachi uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, a pronouncement the word of the Lord to Israel, the nation of Israel, through Malachi. And so it's a, a, a very simple uh, statement at the beginning that just really introduces what this is all about. Now, uh, some versions use a word other than pronouncement. Uh, the New King James Version uses the word burden. And so it's, it's beginning with this idea that Malachi, the prophet, has a heavy message that, that he is bearing 
that it's a burden that he has to share. And he's sharing it specifically to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, uh, that, uh, that, that he has uh, been uh, their God all the way through, as we go all the way back even to the beginning of the uh, New Testament, into the book of Genesis. And we see in Genesis and Exodus how God is calling a people to himself and how throughout the Old Testament we see his interaction with them. And so, so here we have Malachi bringing a pronouncement. He's proclaiming something of great importance. And as we see the book of Malachi, it concludes the Old Testament. It is, it's the end. There's nothing else after Malachi until we get to the New Testament times. And sometimes we refer to this period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament as the silent years, because there were 400 years where there was no prophet of God speaking to his people. 400 years. So Malachi would be the last one, and who would be the next one? Who's the next one that we see in the New Testament? John the Baptist. And so so really, even in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, we see a prophecy of the one who would be coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. So, So Malachi not only concludes the Old Testament, it also connects the, uh, to the New Testament as we think about as we think about John the Baptist. Well, let me give you the timeline of where this prophecy is occurring. And we know that through the years, specifically if we think back to the days of, of Jeremiah, uh, we know that the nation of Israel had been in all kinds of trouble. Uh, it, had, uh, it had rebelled from the Lord. It had, been, uh, it had been separated from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. We know that there were waves of, of persecution which deported uh, the, the nation of Israel, its people to different places, whether it be uh, the, the, the Babylonians or the, the Persians. There were others that would come in and, and really overtake them and at times remove them and even plunder their cities and destroy their their uh, their, their their holy places such as such as the uh, uh, as the temple and so we think through the time frame here and in 538 BC we we know that the people of Israel were returning to their land they were coming back and they were coming back to a place that was theirs, but it was, it was very different. As I said, it had, been, it had been plundered, their houses, their farms, their holy places. And so the temple was being rebuilt under the direction of Haggai and Zechariah. And this would put us about 516 B.C. And then Ezra came, and you may remember Ezra, the one that's opening up the book and, and beginning to, to preach and, and to, to, to bring rest, spiritual restoration was his focus uh, to the nation. Then in 444, we, we read about Nehemiah coming, and, and, and his, his special project was to rebuild what? Remember, rebuilding the wall. And so we keep working our way forward in time, and then we get to 440 B.C. This is the approximate date of Malachi. So he's, he's preaching, and he's, he's giving a word to the Lord to people who are back in their country, who had been deported, that were rebuilding their cities, rebuilding their temple, rebuilding their livelihoods. And this is the, 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 the point in time in which he emerges. And he comes to give this proclamation. In fact, it's so close to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in terms of a time frame that we see some similar themes. Let me just give you a few of them. 
both in Malachi and in Nehemiah, we see words given to corrupt religious leaders, the priesthood of the time. They were corrupt. They did not have a heart for God. They were taking advantage of the people. And both Nehemiah and Malachi spoke of this. We saw that, that the people of Israel had a practice of, of marrying people of different faiths, different pagan religions. And this is mentioned in Nehemiah, Ezra, and Malachi. We see that there is a need for godly marriages, godly families, a need for, for the family to be restored spiritually. And that is mentioned not only in Malachi, but also in Nehemiah. There is information in the book of Nehemiah and in Malachi that there are social injustices happening, such as abuse of the poor. And, uh, and I, just as a side note, any time that we see a people who begin to question the love of God, who do not receive the love of God, or frankly love God, what would we expect to see flow from that? Everything changes, right? If I don't have a love for God, how do I love my wife? How do I love my family? How do I love my neighbors? How do I, how do I care about, about the injustices around me? If, if I don't have that love of God, which gives me that anchor and that vision for what is needed. And, and so that's what we see in these books. And in particular, it comes through clearly in the book of Malachi, and it also impacts their spiritual lives as well. In fact, the fifth point there, Malachi and, and Nehemiah both speak of the way in which uh, the people fail to worship God properly. And even as they give back to him, a lot of what they're doing is just ritual. It's routine. It's not heartfelt. It's a, it's a going through the motions because, again, that affection for God is gone. And so as I think through that and even, even think about the themes that we've already seen, I wonder, is there not a word for us today? Do we, do we not see some, some connections to our own country? Do we not see connections to the, to the churches of America or maybe even our own hearts as we consider whether or not we have uh, a heart for God that is, that is truly authentic? We see that, that, that in this time frame, Malachi, Ezra, and Nehemiah had certain themes that they were emphasizing. Ken Trevet said it this way. He said, Nehemiah sought to rebuild a city, and Malachi sought to recall a people. Nehemiah focuses upon the condition of a place. Malachi focuses upon the condition of a people. And so he has this assignment to bring a pronouncement to bring a word from the Lord to a people who desperately needed to hear and who needed their own hearts and minds to re be reshaped, or the word we're using for the series is to be refined, to be refined. Well, we don't know much about Malachi as a person. He's not mentioned in any other Old Testament book, obviously, because he's the last one to write. We don't, we don't have uh, any other details given, but we know a couple things about his character. Let me mention two. One he is bold. He's bold because he is going to confront the religious leaders of the day. And he's going to go and bring a message to them that, uh, that they themselves need to hear because they are failing to follow the law of God. So he was bold. And he also was one that did not compromise the truth. And so he is going to go, as we will be reading in the coming weeks, he is going to go before the people of Israel and tell them that, 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 that their worship of God is insincere, that it is inauthentic. And so he's not going to compromise. Again, 
as we were talking about at the very beginning, not bringing a message that the people would want to hear, but instead a message that the people needed to hear. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes that's what I need to do when I approach the Bible is to, is to say, Lord, what is it that I need? What do I need to glean today as I spend time in your word? What is it for us as a church as we, as we read through these ancient words, the text of Malachi, what is it for us that God wants to use to stir our affections to him? And when those affections are stirred, can I ask you, friend, what do you think will change? What will change if our affections for God were, were stirred and our heart for him was, was red hot once again? What would change? Everything would change, right? We see how it impacts all of the other relationships in our life and, and how, we, how we view everything else in the world. And so that's what I pray will be something that will bring about a refinement of our faith personally. Now, Malachi is a book that is quoted a few times in the New Testament. Uh, I'll just give you these. I won't, I won't read them, but from Matthew, there's a couple of verses. Also, Mark has a couple of verses, Luke and Romans. Well, as we further think about the audience that Malachi is speaking to, we remember again that Israel is back from their time of captivity in Babylon. The temple has been rebuilt. We know this from a couple of verses that speak about it in the, uh, in the book of Malachi. Uh, we know that it did not have the riches of Solomon's temple. And, I, and I, I would guess that this is probably one of the reasons why they were discouraged. It's like, hey, we're glad that we're back home, but look at our house. We're glad we're back home, but look at our family farm. We're glad to be back home, but look at our temple. It's been burned out. It's a shell of what it used to be. It's been pillaged. And so, so yes, it's good to be back, but they're discouraged even from a, from a faith standpoint at what they are finding. The 12 tribes are now just called Israel. As I mentioned earlier, there was a, a portion of the Old Testament where when we read the word Israel, it's speaking about the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And Judah would be the two southern tribes. But now as we look at verse one, and it says the word of the Lord to Israel, it's speaking about the entire nation, all 12 tribes. The people were indeed discouraged in fact, they were looking at their own situation, and they were still uh, under a governor from Persia, so they weren't, they weren't uh, autonomous in the sense of, of, uh, of, of their own rule. But they could look at some other nearby nations, and some of them were doing very, very well. In fact, this was the golden age of Greece, the age of Pericles. We're talking about the time frame of, of people like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. They, this, the, these would have been within the realm of, 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 of contemporaries uh, to this time period. And so the Greeks were, were celebrating great victories even over the Persian armies, which had caused the nation of Israel so much grief. So if you look at this time, you would see that the people... The readers, the initial people hearing the words of Malachi were discouraged, they were depressed, and they were struggling in their faith. And so, so that, that's helpful for us as we think about uh, what, is, what is happening here. Now, as we're going to see this morning, the theme as Malachi opens is the love of God. And if we were to, to transport back in time and speak to the people then about the love of God, they probably would have responded something like this. Really? You want to talk to me about the love of God? Let me show you our temple. You want to talk to me about the love of God? Let me show you our farm. 
which is, by the way, not producing very well. Let me show you what's, what's happening in our society and how things have unraveled. They, they, they would say, really, how do I balance the love of God with my circumstances? And I would pause and say that that is something that I believe every human at some point struggles with. Even as believers, can't we go through a situation and say, I'd love to think about the love of God. But with what I'm going through right now, I'm really struggling to see how how the love of God corresponds to my particular experience. So these are people that were questioning God's love, as we will read here in the next few verses. And we're going to see that because their love towards God has grown cold, that their love towards one another grows cold as well. And so Malachi comes. And he comes to give them a word of instruction, a word to help them change course. In fact, Ray Stedman in his commentary says it this way. He said, a strange sort of relativism broke out. Malachi describes it in chapter 2 as calling good evil and evil good. There was injustice in the courts, oppression of minority groups, and the nation was cold and destitute of love. Why? Stedman says, because the Jews felt that God no longer loved them. So God raised up this prophet to tell them again of the love of God. Again, a message that I think for us can certainly resonate. One last point about the people, they were not faithful to God. As I said earlier, they were just going through the motions. It was routine. It was ritual. It wasn't authentic, heartfelt worship of God. They were going through the feasts and the fasts and the sacrifices and the outward form, but their hearts were far from God. And so again, even though their worship was different, their location was different, I think and I believe that that we can fall into some of those same routines and for us to be encouraged once again to check and to see how can we bring before the Lord our worship, our sacrifice, our offering, and to do it as we receive and respond to God's great love for us, may we be motivated to love him right back. So with that in mind, let's think about some of the content of Malachi. In fact, Malachi is structured with kind of a question and answer format. Uh, it's, it's, It's like there are six disagreements that God has with the people. And with each disagreement, there is a statement made, and the people act surprised, like, oh, really? How, how are we doing this? And then, and then the prophet takes the opportunity then to instruct. And so it's like a Q&A. Um, in fact, uh, some commentators call this style or this structure as a rhetorical disputation that's going back and forth. And, and so there's a piercing accusation to the nation, you have done this, fill in the blank. And then there's a sarcastic question like, oh, really? How have we done that? And then the prophet takes the opportunity then to speak and give an answer, a very serious response by by doing such and such. And so we're going to see this structure six times in the book of Malachi. In fact, I've, I've laid out for you, the six disagreements that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. The first one is they denied God's covenant love. Secondly, they defiled God's altar. Again, their worship was impacted. 
Number three, they deserted their marriages. Marriage was impacted. Number four, they despised God's standards in terms of how do we apply God's word? Is it, is it relevant for the day? Questions that you even hear being asked in our day. Number five, they disregarded God's tithe, the idea of giving back to the Lord. And number six, they damaged God's name. And so these will be the six areas that we will consider. And we look at those six themes and may, we may wonder, is there a message for us in any of this? Is there evidence in the modern world that some of these same issues are present? Maybe as we look at that list, something may even affect us individually. And we recognize that there is an area there that we need to focus upon. I think that there will be a number of parallels as we move through the text. As a nation, we have turned our hearts away from God. Uh, and without a, a love for God, we know that there is going to be conflict and division seen. And, and I think we could look at our culture and we could look at the world around us and, and we could touch on a lot of the, the topics, and we have, right, as a church. We've looked at a lot of the topics, particularly over the, over the summer months. But I, but, but I think when you, when you get behind all of the topics and you get to the root of what a cause is for disruption or, or a cause for division or strife, the warring against one another, the one thing that we could see that is missing is love for God and love for others. Sounds very similar, I think, to what Jesus said about the greatest commandments, right? To love God and to love others. And so, so the book of Malachi begins with a consideration of the love of God. And maybe for us today, that is something that as we continue to move forward and think about a refined faith and, and other, other, other um, themes that we could see as, as something that is foundational. There are uh, a couple of key verses in Malachi that I'll share with you. Malachi chapter 3, you may remember verse 3, there's this picture of the refiner's fire. It says he will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. And you get this idea that that's the work of God to refine his people, to burn off the dross, to remove the impurities. And of course, we'll spend, we'll spend a, a whole message thinking about this, but, but that's really a theme that, that is throughout the book. Also in verse seven of chapter three, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. So there's lots of themes here that are, that are similar. To return to the Lord, to be refined by the Lord, to have a faith that is, that is renewed by the Lord. What, a, what a, an optimistic understanding that we get even as he identifies these struggles. Malachi is a challenging book, but it is also a hopeful book. One of the commentators that I, that I read is Thomas McComiskey. And he says it this way. He says, anyone who reads Malachi and hears only words of recrimination and judgment has not read them fairly. Within the dismal events this prophet describes lurks the hand of God. And beyond these events is the bright prospect of a kingdom. So with that as our context, with that in mind, let's now move into the book of Malachi and begin by looking at the first disagreement. Again, just a few verses. It won't take us long, but it'll get us into the, uh, into the first 
theme that he lays out. Let's look together at verse 2, and we will see how God's love is declared. Again, from the very beginning of the book, what does he say? I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. Now, it's interesting that, that, the, that the perfect tense is used here, meaning that God had loved them in the past and that he continues to love them in the present. He is not saying, I did love you or I used to love you. He's saying, I have loved you. It's, it's as if he's saying, think back over the generations. Think back of my interaction and my encounter with you through all of the years. In fact, we won't take the time now, but we could even go back into the earliest books of the Old Testament and find examples of, of God affirming the people of Israel as his own, saying over and over again how much he loves them. Deuteronomy 7 is an example. Verse 7, the Lord has his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, meaning they were, they were a small nation, a small, small group of people. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so this book, Deuteronomy, is just reminding them of, of how God had kept his word, how he had rescued them from slavery. And so their history is filled with examples of God being at work in their lives. And I would just say, could we not, even as New Testament believers pause and remember, what has Christ done? Where were you when you found Christ or when Christ found you? Where were you when, when, when he redeemed you, forgave you of your sins and gave you a brand new life? You see, we can look back as well and be reminded of how God has demonstrated his love for us. And I just want to mention that when we use the word love, we're not talking about a feeling. You see, in our culture, when we use the word love, we're oftentimes thinking about an emotion. Well, this is speaking not of, of, of merely an emotion, but of a, of a commitment. And in fact, um, it's, it's a covenant that, that God has made with his people. It's a sacrificial covenant that he upholds even when the people had demonstrated that they were not faithful. Time and time again, God was faithful. This is his kind of covenantal love that he has for them. And even today, we see it in even a stronger context because it was demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. So God's love has been demonstrated. But the second point here is that God's love was doubted. Because just as soon as Malachi made this statement on behalf of God, I have loved you. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? You see what they're doing? They're questioning God's love. They're thinking about their circumstances, as I said earlier. And you may wonder, well, how, how could they do that? How, how could they forget all that God had done for them and how he had provided for them? Even in the desert, providing, providing manna and providing water and bringing them into the promised land. And we think of all the ways that he had demonstrated his love. And yet here they are saying, how? How? Why would they be doing this? Why do you think that they had lost sight of God's love? Where do you think their eyes were focused Upon their circumstances, that's right. 
And we know that because oftentimes we can fall into that same mindset, can't we? We can be overcome by by the present circumstances around us that our eyes just focus on what's here rather than focusing upon what the Lord, who he is, what he has done. And we understand this because we know that Christians, we live in a broken world and we get phone calls that can change the trajectory of, of our day. We can get news that we weren't expecting. We can have health diagnoses that we would rather not have to walk through. We can, we, can, we can lose loved ones just as unbelievers do. We can have financial hardship and lose our jobs. I mean, we can have struggles just like anyone else in this world. We live in a broken world where sin is still laying a curse upon what we see around us. And, and in addition to that, as Christians, we can even take another form of hardship in terms of being persecuted for our faith. Now, we may see that to some degree here in America, limited in many cases, but, but we can read other parts of the world where, where people who take a stand for Christ, they can give their lives for it because of the, the amount of persecution that is happening. And so we, we get the fact that, that, that there are times where we go through hard times as well, but there is encouragement that can be found, that even as we go through the difficulty, we don't go through it alone. That in those hard times, rather than questioning God's love, we can stop and say, how then can I receive his love, even in the midst of what it is I'm going through? You've probably heard the, the, the late pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was sometimes called the Prince of, of Preachers, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London uh, back in the 1800s. And uh, he, 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 he preached not only to a large congregation, but his, his sermons were, were uh, uh, typed up and distributed across the world. And so very, very well-known uh, pastor who struggled with discouragement. He struggled with depression. And if he wasn't careful, he could look out at the, the world around him and really be overcome. In fact, there's an example of it. One time he, he was, had the opportunity to get out of the city of London and he was with a friend in the countryside and they were staying, staying in a very rural environment and they decided to take a walk down a, down a country road. And they, they looked over and at the top of a barn, there was a weather vane to show which way the wind was blowing, right? You have north, south, east, and west. And when the wind's blowing, it kind of turns to point in a particular direction. And this particular weather vane had the phrase, God is love on it. And uh, Spurgeon looked up at that, and it, it kind of bothered him. In fact, I came across a picture that may have been a, a similar one to what, to what he saw. And, and he thought, I don't like the idea of, of God's love, you know, this sign changing with the wind. He said, because God's love is, is, is unchanging. And his friend was with him and said, yeah, you, you make a good point. But, but might there be another reason why the phrase God is love is, is put upon this particular weather vane. He said, he said, maybe the sign is trying to indicate another truth about God's love, and that's this. Regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. And I think for us today, your wind, it, 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 it may have changed. There may be things going on in your life that you didn't foresee or frankly would have, would have wanted, but yet to be reminded that God is love, that his commitment is there, that he is faithful regardless of the circumstances that are going around us. That may be something for us to consider this morning. 
Well, very briefly, let me, let me wrap up the rest of this disagreement, because in his case, he wants to describe God's love a little further to the people of Israel by reminding them of their beginning. And he uses a few verses that, that if we just read them, we might, we might scratch our heads and say, this, this really doesn't seem like it's describing the love of God. But let's read them together and then uh, see what they might mean. Let's pick back up uh, in the middle of verse 2. The question is, how have you loved us? He says this, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob but I hated Esau. And you're like, well, wait, what a minute. Wait, I thought we were talking about God's love, right? And here it says he hated Esau. Let's keep reading. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Through, uh, though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people of the Lord has cursed. The people of the Lord, uh, the Lord is cursed forever. Your uh, your own eyes will see this. Well, let's pause right there for a minute. Here we see two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Do you remember them? Back in Genesis thirty-seven, they are brothers. In fact, they're not just brothers. What are they? Twins, right? Which is the older of the two twin boys? Esau. Who would typically be given the inheritance or the birthright in that culture? Obviously Esau, the older son. And yet if you remember the encounter, there was some deception that took place and, and you had uh, Jacob uh, ending up with the birthright and, and Esau getting a, a bowl of soup. I mean, it's kind of an interesting story, but, but, but anyway, what, what happens is Esau, Esau gives it up. And his people become known as the Edomites. And for generations, are the Edomites friends or foes of the people of Israel? They're foes, right? I mean, they, they, they attack, they, they persecute. Even as they became, the Edomites became known as the Edomians. And they themselves would also be some that would, that would come against the people of Israel. So there, there is a long line of generational struggle between these two people groups. So by the time we get to the end of the book of Malachi, it's well established that, that the people of Edom had been enemies. And so, so the Lord is speaking to them about, about protecting his people and, and punishing the evildoers and so forth. But, but it still causes us to wonder why could the statement of hating Esau uh, be, how can we understand that at all, much less in the context of him saying that God is love. And I want to remind you that, that there are times that this word love used in the Bible uh, and with alongside the word hate has a little bit of a different understanding than what we might, we might uh, hear. And that it, it's particularly thinking about this word hate is meaning not choosing for intimate fellowship or intimate relationship as opposed to love being I choose you for intimate fellowship or relationship. In fact, there's a New Testament verse that, that gives this description, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. And this is one that may have, may have gotten your attention as well. It says, if anyone comes to me, speaking of discipleship, following Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, 
Now look at that verse, and would you agree that that might be one of the, the more difficult verses of the New Testament to try to understand and to explain to others? That we serve a God of love who has just said that, that we are to hate our family? Well, again, we have to understand what is meant by that word. And it's meant about speaking in terms of priority. That God is to be the priority over every other relationship, even the way in which we would love ourselves, right? It says in the verse, it's God that is the priority. And so as we even understand God's love, we can also see that in that time, he did have a priority of love towards the people of Israel. They were his special people. They were in covenant with him. And, and, and yet, uh, as we think about, about the differences between being a New Testament believer as opposed to the Old Testament believer, I think that we could, we could also understand that, that, that the nation of Israel or even Jacob himself, they did not deserve God's love. And I think that's a point that's being made here. He's, he's reminding them, was Jacob the older or the younger brother? Well, he was the younger. Who should have gotten the inheritance? The older. And yet I have loved you. I have loved the nation of Israel. And I think for those of us standing on the other side of the cross, we could also be reminded that have we earned the love of God? Have we deserved his forgiveness? No. We are humbled when we think about his grace, when we think about his mercy, that, that we didn't achieve our own salvation, that it's not been about self-reliance. It's been about our dependence upon God. And so flowing from that, there can be a, a greater sense of gratitude for the salvation that God has given by removing any idea that we have earned it or deserved it. But that God has chosen us, that he has called us, that he has done a work in our midst that we, that we can understand, that we can receive and respond. Notice what the apostle John says in 1 John 3. He said, see what great love the father has given us that we should be called God's children. Then he says, and we are, exclamation point. Now, isn't that a great identity for you and I who have called on Christ for salvation to say we are his children? We are his family. We've, we've thought about that over the, the early part of the fall and just seeing our identity in Christ. But, the Apostle John is writing to New Testament believers, many of whom are outside of the nation of Israel, right? They're Gentile believers. And we see that God's love wasn't just contained to the people of Israel. In fact, what does it say right here in Malachi? Chapter 1, the end of verse 5. The Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. So as we see that God had a covenant love for his people, we know that there is example after example that he had a love that went beyond them. In fact, it kind of reminds me of a New Testament passage. Does any, any passage come to mind about God loving the world? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So friends, as we think this morning, we wrap up this understanding of trying to know that, yes, God indeed is a God of love, that he loves us. How can we respond? How can, how can we love him back today? 
One person described John 3.16 like this. God, he's the greatest giver. So loved, that's the greatest motive. The world, it's the greatest need. That he gave, that's the greatest act. His only son, it's the greatest gift. That whosoever, that's the greatest invitation, right? Believes in him, there's the greatest opportunity. Should not perish, there's the greatest deliverance, but have eternal life. There, my friend, is the greatest joy. So as we stand here today on the other side of the cross, on the other side of, of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, can we not this morning reflect upon his love? And can't we ask him even today to use that to rekindle our love for him? That our love for him can be, can be strong that our love for one another can, can even be rekindled and that, uh, that our love for the world and for the people around us can be evident. Well, let's pray that God will, will take his word today and even in the weeks ahead as we study this book and apply it to us. Would you, would you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that even this ancient text is one that can speak to us today. We thank you, Lord, for your reminder that you are a God who is committed, a God who is faithful, a God who is loved. And you have loved us. You've expressed that. You've demonstrated it. And Lord, help us today. Help us to receive it. And Lord, I pray for anyone among us today that feels as if the, the winds have shifted, if the circumstances have gotten more difficult. Lord, may this today be a reminder that you are with them, that you love them, that you remain committed. Father, I pray that each of us can walk through these circumstances and to once again affirm our love for you. And God, may that love be seen not just in our words. Lord, may it be seen at the depth of our souls as we desire to love you back, to worship you, to serve you, and to love one another. God, take your word today and apply it. Use it to draw people to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, amen. Would you stand as we respond today in song?